Hello and welcome to the Culture Swally, a podcast dedicated to Scottish news and pop culture. My name is Nicky and I am joined, as always, by the man who has a lot more than two styles. He doesn't just go for the short back or the short back and sides. He has the whole styles in his repertoire. It's Greg. How are you today, Greg? Very well. How are you? I'm um, very well, thank you. Yeah, I can't complain. Everything's good. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. The last time we spoke, we knew that you would have something to, um, to you know, we, when I asked you, as I always do, what we've been up to, normally you're like, fuck all. <laughs> but you've actually been doing stuff in this last week. What have you been doing? I have been, yeah. I, I, we had the in-laws here for the last week so that's been uh, wonderful and yeah we've been busy been doing quite a lot I've been out and about a fair bit out for dinner and stuff to be fair I I was busy a little bit so there were a couple of tourist things that my wife took them on which I unfortunately wasn't able to go to so they went to Den Haag for the day I was supposed to go but at the last minute I couldn't go because our dog ate something in the kitchen which we're still not quite sure what it was and started feeling quite sick so I had to kind of deal with him um they they went to go and visit windmills which I unfortunately wasn't able to go to either uh so yeah but however we did go to the Heineken experience and I made sure I went there so that was a a wonderful (laughs) little trip nice little tour never been before Uh and very interesting learning all about Heineken and uh, yeah a few interesting facts like uh, for example did you know that when Prohibition stopped in the United States back in the like 1930s. They announced that it stopped. So Heineken straight away sent a boat full of Heineken over to the States. So Heineken was the first imported lager into the United States. And that is why it is still the number one selling imported beer in the United States to this day. Wow. Isn't it? Yeah. Fascinating fact but, there. Yeah. Yeah. Did, you, and did you partake in a little sample of various brews? Well, funnily enough, they do. They, they say that you get to sample the beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you get a, a little wristband when you go in for your tour <laughs> and it has these little two kind of tokens on it. That's for your two beers. Bit of a con. You get to sample one during the tour. Oh, oh actually I tell a lie. You get to sample a shot <laughs> halfway through the tour. This is before the alcohol is technically added right. so you're just basically tasting water and a little bit of barley and so it, it's nice it tastes like cold tea right. but there's no alcohol in it then towards the end of the tour you then get to have oh I'd say it's probably about a quarter of a pint of, of Heineken to sample <laughs> and the guy shows you how you should drink beer I'm like yeah I've been doing that for about 25 <laughs> years mate I know how to drink beer but he does show you how you should be drinking it in terms of taking big gulps so that you keep the head on it because that keeps the fizz mm-hmm. in the beer and then all, all this jazz. Uh, then at the very end of the tour, they push you into the bar and you can exchange your other token for a half pint. So yeah, I had like not even a full pint on this experience. And then of course, then they push you into the gift shop where you can buy Heineken hoodies or bottle openers or bottle coolers or a whole array of random Heineken things. But uh, yeah, it was a good experience. It was a Heineken experience. (laughs) And yeah, I now know how to drink a beer properly after all these years. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like you thought, I mean, I've always fancied doing the Guinness uh, factory tour in Dublin. And I, I, th- I will one day. Hmm. Um, the only thing is, I wouldn't really discovered a taste for Guinness in like the last maybe ten years or so. So like the last couple of times I was in Dublin was longer than ten years ago. So I never uh, I had no inclination. But um, but now that I like Guinness, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind going and, and giving it a try. Yeah, I do love a pint yeah. of Guinness 
very nice. I've, I've loved that for years, actually. Yeah. I always liked Guinness, yeah, even when I was younger. It's just a nice little smooth pint. Very nice. Very filling as well. Gives you a hood of a shite. <laughs> I was going to say, it totally clears you out the next day. Yeah, you know, the first time I went to Dublin, I went on a stag do, and we were like, oh, we've got to a pint of Guinness somewhere. And I, I wasn't young. I was, I'd probably been about 25, 26, something like that. Yeah, I mean, everybody says that it tastes different in Ireland, right? Yeah. So I tried, I, tried, I remember trying it and just not being able to go on with it at all. Just didn't like it. So yeah, I think I need to have a pint of Guinness. I've, I've had a pint of Guinness in Northern Ireland. So I used to go there for work quite a lot. Um, but I imagine it's, imagine it's just as good as what you get in Dublin. I wouldn't imagine doing it. I've no idea. I mean, it's the same probably as a pint of tenants better in Scotland than it is anywhere else. Yeah, it must be because we saw that in the advert in the, uh, is that the early 90s, the, the Caledonia advert? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, I mean, he, he doesn't drink a pint of tenants in London, but he just wants to go home to drink his pint of tenants. But I mean, tenants isn't something you see on drafts abroad that often, really, apart from in Italy where they sell super. Well, as we know, yeah, with a story about that, it, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, yeah like one of the best selling drinks in Italy, like a rite of passage drink for young novice drinkers. <laughs> uh, next time I'm in Italy, I'll have to have a pint of super tea and see if it tastes differently than a wee purple tin. I mean, the, the last time that I was home with you, we drank a lot of tenants. You know, and mm. our mutual friend who was also with us, he like he's quite down on tenants, isn't he? He thinks that we're that we're a pair of scumbags because we're fans of the tea. I don't think I've told this story on the Swally before, but I have told it to you right. before, and you couldn't get tenants in. Dubai uh-huh. when I, I lived there. I think, I, I don't know if you still can. They, they kind of, there was like a brief flurry where they got it. They got it in the MMI and A&E stores. And it was just before Christmas. Right. And I walked into the store and obviously it's the usual stuff in there. It's, you know, Heineken, Budweiser, Miller, yeah, Ching Tao. Yeah. And all of a sudden, just it was glowing in the background. <laughs> there was cases of 500 mil cans of tenants. And as I say, it was just before Christmas. And I turned to the guy and I said, when did you get that in? <laughs> and he went, ah, you Scottish? <laughs> I was like, yes, I'm Scottish. I was like, yeah, can I have two cases, please? And I can't remember how much it was. I think it was about 200 dirhams or something, you know, a case, you know, which is it's quite expensive. <laughs> but hey, it's tenants. And he laughed and he was like, yeah, a woman came in yesterday and bought three cases for her husband's Christmas present. <laughs> it's just it's just like this mecca of tenants. You know, you know what it's like when you see Iron Brew in the yeah, supermarket? Yeah. You're like, oh, my God, it's tenants. And they had it for maybe about six months and then I never had it again. Right. I was so disappointed. And I know as you you say people look down on it and people call it cooking lager and stuff but when i go back home I, all i want to drink is a pint of tenants you can't beat it yeah for me I, I, it's lovely and a, a pint of tenants i think you know comparing it to a can and you know i, I like a can of tenants but there's something smoother when it's on draft mm. do you know what i mean like sometimes a can's got a wee bit of a sort of chemically back of the throat yeah but with a pint I mean, that, that time that we were in Aberdeen, I think you and I drank a lot of pints of tenants <laughs> that Friday afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> what else are you going to drink? I'm not going to drink Stella or Cronenberg. I'm back yeah, in Aberdeen. Yeah. I'm going to have a pint of tea. <laughs> if only they had super tea on draft, then we would have been in a lot of trouble that afternoon, I'll tell you that. Yeah, we're in a little bit of trouble anyway, I think, to be honest. But um, yeah, that would have... Uh, that would have compounded things, I imagine. <laughs> oh, never mind. Oh, well, speaking of uh, Scotland and our love for tenants, shall we have a look at the news? Cue the jingle. Oh, 
This is the Outer Hebrides Broadcasting Corporation, and here is what's been going on in the news. Okay, Greg, so have you seen anything in Scotland over the last couple of weeks that has tickled your fancy? And I do, um, and the thing was, like, the last time we were on, we were sort of lamenting that the news has been, it's been a bit harder to find sort of Swally-centric stories because the news has been a bit yeah grim, you know, all sort of COVID, Afghanistan, everything. So this week... I actually found quite a lot of Swally-centric uh, stories, which is maybe a good indicator that, that Scotland, at the very least, is getting back to normal after um, almost two years of uh, of COVID. So my first story is actually a, a Scottish slash Irish story. The headline is, uh, Pod of Scottish Dolphins Helped to Save a Man Stranded Off the Irish Coast. Rory McSorley was rescued by the RNLI with the help of some... <laughs> That's a belter of a name. With the help of some Scottish dolphins after he went out for a swim in Kerry. There's a picture of Rudy on here. Apparently, he's also known as Frostbite Boy. I'm not sure if that's like his rap name or something. He looks a bit surprised. So, let me just scroll past all the ads. Uh, he was reported missing after his clothes were found on a beach in Inch in Kerry about 8 o'clock last Sunday morning. Following a search, he was discovered almost 12 hours later amongst a pod of bottlenose dolphins in the sea near Castle Gregory in County Kerry. He was taken to the University Hospital, uh, sorry, the University Hospital Kerry, which is in Tralee, but he got out yesterday. So when I was reading this, I was thinking right, how do they know that there were Scottish dolphins, you know? They had like tartan scarfs on or something, but apparently the reason they know is because it says the dolphins who helped to rescue him were later identified as a group that live in the Moray Firth, and they were visiting the region, so... (laughs) Scottish dolphins have gone on their holidays from the Moray Firth <laughs> over to uh, the coast just off of uh, Kerry. Um, the Irish whaling dolphin group said, The Fennet 3 have been identified. They belong to the Moray Firth population. This population is resident uh, in the Moray Firth in Scotland as the Shannon dolphins are resident in Shannon in nearby bays. Other animals from this population, including the famous Spurtle, it can't be that famous, this is the first time I'm hearing about it, also stayed in this area for a few weeks in 2019 before arriving home to Scotland uh, by Christmas. In an interview with the Irish independent newspaper Rory, who's 24, he paid tribute to the RNLI. Now, I will say he's not the most articulate of people. He said, they are very professional and very slick. They're incredible people. I have to say, they aren't like doctors or paramedics, paid professionals. They're volunteers. They're definitely a great group of people. There's no doubt. They wrapped me up in blankets and took my body temperature and everything, and then just rushed me to the hospital. He goes on to say something a bit weird here. He says, there's no victim mentality here. Other than a bit of pain in the back of my te- the back of my knee, I'm a hundred percent. There's no long term damage. The only thing was my kidneys need my kidneys needed to readjust. So there was no serious harm. It was only a matter of going to the hospital to heat up for a bit. Other than that, I was fine. It's reported that when he was rescued, Rory was dangerously hyperthermic, but he insisted that the only thing that is stressing me out is everybody else panicking about it. I just jumped in. That was it. I saw Fennet Lighthouse out in the water and I said, right, I'm going towards it. I wouldn't have got into I wouldn't have got in to start with if I didn't know I was going to be grand, he explained. He told the Irish Independent there was one moment during the ordeal that he was worried about his safety. He said, I saw these black tails in the water and I wasn't sure if they were dolphins or sharks. I just thought to myself, maybe it wouldn't have been the worst idea to have Googled this before I jumped in. But luckily they were just dolphins. 
<laughs> they wouldn't have done any harm to you. I had no problem with them. They were just swimming around me. If anything, they might have helped me. It was definitely an experience. The dairy man used his humour to make light of the situation, even from the first moment he was rescued by the RNLI. Apparently, the first thing I said to them was, I'll not have to pay for this, will I? Was I frightened? Fear is all in the mind, he said. So, that's old Rory there. I mean, he's done well to... It doesn't say if he took a life jacket or anything on. It doesn't even say... I guess he's set off for his swim from the beach, you know? So I don't, I don't, I don't imagine you'd have had like a life jacket or anything on. So I, I guess he's done pretty well to um, to sort of stay in the water for twelve hours and not drown. <laughs> I guess he's just lucky that those dolphins didn't decide to go to Millport for their holidays <laughs> and they've decided to go somewhere else. COVID, everything's kind of open again. Yeah. So like, come on, lads, fuck Millport. Let's go. Ireland. And and he's pretty lucky he's met these friendly dolphins on their holidays. He's lucky they weren't pissed. Because yeah. if they're on their holidays in Ireland, they were probably heading for the Guinness factory. <laughs> and they've had to stop off to save Rory. And then maybe then they've gone and um, got their Guinness. Maybe. Oh, good on them. I I fucking love dolphins. They're great. They're, you know, they're, they're very intelligent creatures yeah. and, and very lovely, I think. And uh, good on them. I mean, everybody knows that Scottish tourists are always really friendly to everybody they meet anyway. So why so why should <laughs> Scottish dolphins on our holidays be any different? That's true. Uh, they are, yeah, doing a, a good name for Scotland there. It, exactly as you say, Scottish tourists on their holidays. Good on them. I'm very pleased to hear that. Absolutely. Good, good, great ambassadors for the country. Those young dolphins. Well, I say young dolphins. I've no idea how old they were. I mean, it's a fair way to swim. So you need you need your to be like young and vibrant and all that. I can't imagine that any old dolphins are swimming all the way from Elgin to Ireland for their holidays. Anyway, what's your first story this week? Uh, well, my first story comes from the Daily Record this week, and it is about a Scots tattoo artist who created an epic tattoo for a customer wanting to cover up a painful memory. Christy McGregor, who works at Archangel 1608 Tattoo Studio in Glasgow, explained that one of her customers had approached her to help up cover an ex's name which he'd had tattooed on his leg whilst on holiday. Bit of word of advice to any Swally listeners, don't ever get somebody's name tattooed on you. Unless it's your kid. Yeah. Or your dog. Yeah. But never get a partner's name on you. Anyway, the uh, the 38-year-old artist said the pair then hatched a plan of what they would like the cover-up design to be. Chrissy explained he joked about getting a breakfast tattoo. I suggested a rolling square, <laughs> thinking he probably wouldn't be keen on the idea. And then he contacted me to book it that night. <laughs> the talented inker then got to work, taking under just two hours to cover the man's embarrassing tattoo with this spectacular new design. Chrissy added, I always love doing tattoos that I think other people wouldn't have. <laughs> yeah, what, who the fuck would want this tattoo? Um, with designs and ideas that might not fit into the norm of tattooing. The photo of the brilliant tat, the words of the Daily Record, not the words of the Swally, shows a roll and square sausage topped with red sauce. <laughs> this has gone down a storm on social media and we will link this <laughs> to the Swally. We'll put this in our Instagram account along with our page painting of a rolling square oh, sausage yes, yeah. that we also have on there. Uh, it, it's gone down a storm on social media and it's been posted on many Instagram pages and Facebook groups. Posting a pic of her creation, Chris A wrote, when you tattoo this belter and get a craving for fresh Morton rolls. <laughs> One fan described it as iconic, while another described, wow, I love it, a quintessential symbol of Scotland. Uh, another wrote, fantastic, a slice of black pudding in it would have been perfect. 
<laughs> so yeah, so this links back to previous episodes where we've had a, a guy who got a, a painting of a rolling square. Yep. And of course, the woman that got tattoo of, what was it? Uh, it was Greg's the Baker's. <laughs> Greg's the Baker, of course it was. Yes. I was thinking farm foods for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I'm thinking about the shite in the Iceland freezer. Um, yeah. So tattoo of a roll in square sausage. And there's a photo, which I say we will upload. And it genuinely is... You know something? It looks better than that fucking painting oh, really? of the Roman Square. But there is red sauce dripping out. It kind of looks a bit like a tongue coming mm. out of it. It's it's a bit odd, but would you ever get a tattoo of a food item on you, no, Greg? No, <laughs> definitely not. I mean, and the, the thing is, I think they made a bit of a, a bit of a error of judgment there because everybody knows that you have brown sauce with a Roland Square sausage, not ketchup. Yeah. Like, well, I wouldn't have a square sausage because as I've said to you before, it gives me heartburn. Yeah. However, I- if I was to a link sausage, then yes, it's brown sauce all the way. And also, you're a vegetarian, oh, a pescatarian. Yeah, but so. I have I have vegetarian sausages, yeah, yeah. so so it's it's fine. If I still have a sausage sandwich occasionally, but it's just it's not meat. But I still have brown sauce on it. The the very sort of spark of this idea is a bit unusual. They, you know, I I guess he's not the first person to get a ex girlfriend or ex boyfriend's name tattooed somewhere and then obviously live to regret it and want to get it covered up. But I'm thinking. Breakfast. <laughs> it's just a bit weird. You know what I mean? Yeah. Instantly, I guess, like, oh, well, it's my favourite meal of the day, but I wouldn't instantly think, oh, yeah, I'll get a, an item of food tattooed on me. Mm. I don't know. I, I've pondered this. I'm not sure what I would get. Despite the fact that I am a kind of vegetarian, pescatarian, I don't know. I'm kind of going off fish a little bit right. now as well. Um, I, I think I would probably get a potaudry pie I was going to say, tattooed on me. I was going to say maybe like a rowey. Oh, a rowey. That's even better. <laughs> That is better. I mean, I guess it's not vegetarian. Well, it's yeah, it's vegetarian. It's got lard in it. Yeah, it's not meat product. It's not vegan. It, it's vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a rawi. Oh yeah. Oh, I could get a rawi tattooed on me. That's a good idea. Where would you get it? I quite like that. Where, 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 where would I get that? On my on my forehead. <laughs> I, I don't know. Close to my heart. Right. That's where I'd get a rowie. Yeah. So that I always think, I don't know. Where would you get a rowie tattoo? I don't know. Somewhere that people wouldn't see it, I would <laughs> yeah, imagine. On your arse or something like that. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I've never... like I've got, like, three tattoos and they're all on my arms. And, you know, I can know a lot of people have got sort of tattoos on their backs. and th- Well, you've got a tattoo in your back. But mm. I've always thought, well, I don't really... If, you know, I like to be able to look at my tattoos when I want to look at them you know what I mean like if it's on my back we'll get to enjoy it without sort of having to look in the mirror and twist my head round or whatever you know it's well this guy got it on his leg yeah and it looks like from the photo it's probably on his thigh so right. every time he goes to have a shite <laughs> he can look at his rolling sausage <laughs> can you imagine I guess he's got something to talk about when he meets his when he meets a new girlfriend do you know what I mean <laughs> It's a conversation starter, <laughs> yeah. that's for sure. Have you got any tattoos? I do, actually. Yeah, I've got a rolling square <laughs> on my thigh. Yeah. I've got to take my trousers off to show you it. Don't read anything into this. I just, I just want to show you it, that's all. <laughs> I don't know, would you rather have a, a tattoo of a rolling square on your thigh or a tattoo with the Greg's logo on your arse? I mean, the Greg's logo probably works better for you since it's your name. <laughs> yeah. Although it's different spelling. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a quandary, isn't it? Yeah. Like everybody, I have like my favourites, but I'm not like a, I'm not like, which is surprising considering that I work in food. I don't have, I'm not like, you know how some people are like super fanatical about certain things. Like I remember when my mother lived in Yemen, whenever she was flying back there from the UK, she'd have bags filled with like 
foods from Marks and Spencers and like a cool bag with like meat and everything and just things that she couldn't bear to be away from. But I um, I don't really, um, I kind of appreciate these things more. Like when I go back to Scotland, I always really enjoy that first rolling square sausage or, or like full Scottish breakfast or whatever it is that I've not had for ages. I'm not like so enthusiastic about a certain food or snack or something that I get it tattooed in my body. <laughs> well, it's just like we heart back to the the opening of the podcast. You're not going to get the tenant's tea tattooed on your body or the Iron Brew logo, are you? No. That's just a little bit ridiculous. I, I, I'm sure apologies to any of our listeners that do have that, because I'm sure maybe some of you do, but yeah, yeah come on. Yeah, it's unusual behaviour. Well, good luck to him. I hope he meets a, he meets a new girlfriend soon and he doesn't get her name tattooed on his body in case he has to get another cover-up if the relationship breaks down. You got a roll of bacon on the next one. <laughs> a black pudding or something. Yeah, you know? yeah, that'd be good, actually. <laughs> yeah, black pudding or yeah, fried egg, just to go with that, yeah. So uh, what else have you seen this week that's caught your eye, Greg? I feel like you'll like this one. Unfortunately, the subject matter is about is a sort of partner-on-partner violence, which is never good. But the headline is Audrey Hepburn namesake guilty of attacking partner and claiming she'd slipped on a pot noodle. So this is Irvin woman, Audrey Hepburn. The reporter writes... It was an unseemly rammy that would have left My Fair Lady star Audrey Hepburn most definitely clutching her perils. A thug who has the same name as the cinema legend landed in court after attacking her partner and she tried to put the blame on a pot noodle. Hepburn, who's 47, attacked her partner, Laura McIntyre, at their flat, leaving the 41-year-old covered in blood. The assault left the victim with a lump the size of a golf ball and blood pouring from a head injury during the incident last month. When the police turned up at the property in Irvine, officers heard the pair agreeing to claim that McIntyre slipped on a pot noodle which had spilled on the kitchen floor. Hepburn denied assaulting Miss McIntyre during the trial at Kilmarnock Sheriff Court this week. The court heard that the couple made such a racket that the neighbours called the police twice in just a few hours. Uh, Constable Nicky Callan said there was collusion between the two of them to come up with a story. It was, it's the police, we need to get our story straight. Say you slipped on that pot noodle. Miss McIntyre was clearly injured. There was a large swelling above her left eye, uh, which increased in size as she was speaking to me, and there was blood trickling from her hairline from an injury. Constable Laura Clayton added, We were told that she'd slipped on a pot noodle that had been spilled on the floor, but there was no sign of a pot noodle. So Sheriff Alistair Watson has convicted Audrey Hepburn of domestic assault to injury, um, and she'll get sentenced next month. So there was no pot noodle was, on the floor? There was, no, there was no pot noodle. Well, according to Constable Laura there, she said there was no sign of any pot noodle on the floor. If she gets off with this, do you think she should get a tattoo of a pot noodle <laughs> on her leg? I think she definitely should, because it sounds, yeah. sounds like she'll be lucky to get off with it. Well, she's been found guilty. So, If you were to get a tattoo of a pot noodle, what uh, flavour of pot noodle tattoo would you get? I don't like pot noodles. Oh, I used to love a pot noodle. Chicken and mushroom. I used to love a chicken and mushroom pot noodle. My daughters like them. Uh, my oldest daughter's favourite is chicken and mushroom. My younger daughter likes the curry. Yeah. She, she likes like, the curry one. I've just, I don't know. It's never been a fan. A Bombay bad boy was always a good one as well. Yeah. That was a, I, I don't know, did they still sell those? Can you get away with that now? Is that, would that be allowed? Bombay bad They still boy? sell them. They sometimes have them in um, my local supermarket here where Iron Brew can also be purchased but 
but not tenant slagger, unfortunately. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I don't, I've never liked pot noodles. You never do. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see if. Uh, so I guess Audrey Hepburn's mum has like, intentionally named her after the famous actress. We would think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't imagine it's a coincidence. No. <laughs> she's yeah, yeah. She's named her after her. But uh, well, a fair play. But yeah, uh, a bit of a, a dark story there. But I see what you've gone for with the the pot noodle element. Uh, that's that's very funny. But yeah. no pot noodle was to be found that's um and the, yeah and the police heard them like like getting their story straight um after they arrived mm. you know what i mean so so yeah maybe not the best story for the swally it, it was funnier when i read it on thursday than it is now that i read it out <laughs> i guess there's two morals one is if you beat up your partner you're always going to get in trouble and two pot noodle was not a useful alibi no it's not unless you get a tattoo of it on your leg to cover up your ex-girlfriend's name then that's a, a useful alibi so you would get a chicken and mushroom if you were getting a pot noodle tattoo it would be the chicken and mushroom pot noodle you would get i mean i wouldn't get a chicken and mushroom tattoo but <laughs> I, I'd, uh, a pot noodle tattoo sorry but yeah if, yeah if i was to yeah chicken and mushroom yeah because i wouldn't want to have bombay bad boy tattooed on my body right but chicken and mushrooms okay i think i think we should move along quickly to your next story okay um so this next story is also from the daily record and i feel almost guilty including this because it's not a hundred percent scottish but it kind of is um you'll see why as i tell it but i just wanted to include this as a as a conversation piece and because i thought it was a it was a really nice story so the man who runs the uk's last video shop is set to drive 600 miles it would have been better if it had been 500 he maybe should have traveled 100 before publishing this article yeah. Uh, to Scotland to save 20,000 VHS tapes from the dump. Videodicy, and that's how I think it's pronounced, Videodicy owner Andy Johnson is travelling from Liverpool to Dundee to collect a mammoth donation of tapes. The movie buff followed his dream to open a video rental store and it has proven so popular that he has had to expand the store. Uh, people across the country have donated their tapes to him, including George McInnes in Dundee. And that's why he's travelling up to Dundee to collect the 20,000 VHS tapes, which George has collected over decades from car boot sale. And he said he's happy to let them go to be loved by somebody else. Apparently, it's the biggest collection of tapes that Andy has ever heard about. So Andy, 42-year-old, um, he decided to open this rental store and it's gone from strength to strength. And youngsters in their 20s, are now obsessed with VHS and Andy rents out VCRs right? so they can rent a VCR and a, a VHS to experience their childhood again firsthand. So Andy's store has 15,000 tapes already and he's about to get another 22,000 um, from uh, George in Dundee. Uh, Andy revealed that he believed that tapes are beginning to enjoy a similar resurgence as vinyl and of course we all know about the vinyl craze and of course I think cassette tapes are making in the way back as well. I've seen a couple of artists recently releasing albums only on digital download and cassette, which fucking blows my mind that cassettes are coming back. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, film fans are craving a physical connection to their collection. Oh, that's a good little rhyme <laughs> there. Now, why wouldn't you crave fucking DVD? It's got a much better picture quality. I can understand yeah. the, the nostalgia of VHS. I used to love my VHSs. DVDs take up a lot less space and the quality is so much better. Mm -hmm. They can also enjoy the artwork on the cover and the nostalgia feel playing an analogue copy. Uh, Andy told about his joy of how popular 
where his video shop has been since opening. He said, we're on a mission to save film. I had hoped there'd be a good reaction to opening the video shop, but the response has been phenomenal. I'm blown away by the love and support we've received. VHS is starting to have a similar comeback as seen with vinyl. People want a physical connection to their favourite films rather than the cold experience of playing something from the cloud. Fuck that. I watched a film last night from the cloud and it was fucking beautiful quality. I didn't have to stick a video in. I didn't have to look at fast forward, rewind and stuff. It was fantastic. Um, so yeah, uh, Andy's video store is in Liverpool. So yeah, sorry Swally audience. Kind of cheating, but he is driving to Dundee. Uh, Andy used to work as a clerk in a video shop as a teenager, as did I. Mm. Oh, fantastic. And he's now in a mission to gather people's collections of old gems and save films which never came out on a digital format from Oblivion. It's uh, it's taken over his life in a very short space of time, but he is a very understanding wife. So you used to have a massive VHS collection, Greg. I think we have spoken about that on the Swally before. Yeah. And we do remember your massive wall of VHS. You should have kept hold of it, mate. It's probably worth a fortune now. Well, I mean, they may still be out there somewhere. Like when I moved in with my girlfriend, who later became my wife, uh, when we bought our house, first house together, she gave all my videos away to the church just because they took up too much space. <laughs> but I've been thinking, but I'm kind of with you. Like, I, I did have a big collection of videos, but the problem with VHS is the more you play them, the tape would deteriorate, right? Because, you know, obviously the, the, the VHS player has got a set of heads. You know, the heads can fuck up the tape and stuff like yeah. that. And, you know, you got to rewind it back to the beginning you know what I mean um, you know like I remember when DVD came out and just thinking this is so much better than um, than what we had before we, we, see when you worked at Blockbuster so when you worked at Blockbuster DVDs were still kind of they've been around for like a few years but they were still like reasonably new did you have hmm. videotapes as well at Blockbuster yeah we did and it, it, I mean that would have been 2001 3 I think I'd, I'd say 2003 rough that I worked at Blockbuster at the start of 2003 and yes kind of VHS was being phased out so I think when I first started working there it was kind of the wall that you would have was kind of half DVD half VHS and then towards the end of I worked there it was very much it was all DVD and the lower wall was VHS so when a new release came out you'd maybe get four copies on VHS and you would get you know 25 copies on DVD And, and it was quite odd when a customer would come in and sort of say do you have this film yep we've got it on DVD oh yeah I don't have a DVD player yeah and oh okay well yeah I can't help you we don't have that on VHS I I mean I'm guilty of buying buying into kind of the the vinyl revival I have a turntable I have speakers I have have maybe about 50 vinyl records and as much as I I always have my headphones in and music or podcast playing on my phone there's something about the feel of taking a vinyl record out of its sleeve and putting it on the turntable and putting the needle down and just listening to that crackle yeah and just letting the music play throughout the house it's it's kind of it's it's an experience more than letting it play through a bluetooth speaker yeah but putting a vhs in a fucking recorder and having to fast forward through the previews and stuff <laughs> and then oh, i couldn't be fucked with that and then having to as you say they get worn out my copy of uh, basic instinct got <laughs> really worn out <laughs> A, a certain scene. <laughs> it was really bad at some point. 
and it was really terrible. <laughs> yeah, the quality kind of degrades a bit, and that's the thing, it's not going to last forever. Mm-hmm. Whereas, as you say, a DVD, of course, I mean, okay, they can get damaged, but you have to really scratch, yeah, yeah. you know, and I don't know, it, it, it's not something I can see really coming back anytime soon, the demand. Well, this guy's doing a, a boom, renting out VHS um, players, uh, uh, VCR players, yeah. I should say, sorry, and VHS tapes. Well, the thing is, like, to, to your point about vinyl, you know, that you're, that whole ritual of putting on a record is ultimately rewarding, as you've described, but also, mm. vinyl has, it's got a sort of richer sound than... CDs yeah. or you know playing it off a media file so it's got a sort of richer yeah. kind of fuller sound but yeah you sort of touched on it earlier the quality of VHS is nowhere near do you know what I mean it's it's not like and a vinyl record if you look after it it'll last forever my, my dad's got records that he's had since he was a teenager that mm. that he's looked after they still play but it's v, like VHS doesn't do that I mean I think I read that article when he was talking about van fill and sustainability a bit as well I think wasn't he the, the video guy mm. and the whole set thing surprises me as well because I remember not really learning the proper words to songs for years because I'd only really heard them on cassette and it wasn't until mm. you know as like file quality speaker quality and everything got better I you know <laughs> I don't know why you'd want to go back to cassettes but like good luck to them you know what I mean there's always there's always somebody that's that's into the kind of retro thing right so okay um, anything else in the news this week Greg uh, no there was a story about a man getting thrown out of the last post pub in Paisley for being just like a drunken arse and upsetting the barmaid and he claimed he was the hardest man in Paisley but he sounded like a bit of a, an arse so I thought we won't make him famous we'll just he can just stay in the paper <laughs> okay well before we move on to the review let's hear a word from our sponsor and when you're ready go for tennis it's waiting there for you Okay, well, it was your choice this week, Greg. So why don't you tell us what we're going to be speaking about on the Swally today? So in the last episode, we mentioned that we haven't... We've only done one thing with Robert Carlyle, which is obviously train spotting, arguably certainly one of, if not his most uh, famous role. So I thought I would choose a Carlyle-led project this time. So I've chosen The Legend of Barney Thompson. Released in 2015, the film's based on the 19th... 1999 novel The Long Midnight of Barney Thompson by Douglas Lindsay. It's Robert Carlyle's directorial debut. He also obviously plays the starring role, uh, the eponymous Barney Thompson. It's got a great cast the movie. Uh, Emma Thompson is in there, Ray Winston, Ashley Jensen, Martin Comston, Stephen McCall, uh, Brian Pettifer, Tom Courtney, um, who arguably steals the show. Um, every time he's on the screen. It tells the story of a 50-year-old Barney Thompson who works at Henderson's Barbers in Bridgeton, lives a very quiet life. Um, His rather uninteresting life is turned upside down when he enters the grotesque and comically absurd world of a serial killer after accidentally killing his boss, Willie. So, I had never watched this all the way through 
Um, for whatever reason, I'd only seen, before I watched it for the Swally, I'd only seen the first maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes or so. Had you watched this before? I had, yes. Um, I was, I think it was when I was, well again, when I was living in Dubai, and similarly to Bob Servant, when I was kind of absorbing all of this Scottish TV shows. I was reading a lot of Scottish books and drinking a lot of Tenants when I could get it. I was reading a lot of um, Stuart McBride, Christopher Brookmeyer, and I think I was Googling Scottish authors and, and Scottish books. And I came across this Barney Thompson, and I think I'd read that there was a film coming out with Robert Carlyle in it. So I bought the book and I read the book before I'd seen the film. Really enjoyed the book. And I think I went on to read, I, I think there's nine books now right. in total of the Barney Thompson series. I think I've read the first maybe four or five. Mm-hmm. So I might need to go back and start reading them again to, to read the whole series through. So yes, I saw this film not when it first came out because... It, it didn't come out in the Middle East. Why are they going to release a film about a Scottish barber in there? But I, I downloaded it when it became available to download. So yeah, I'd watched it pretty much when it came available. Right. And that was the only time I've watched it. So watching it for the Swally was only the second viewing I've had. I remember really enjoying it when I watched the film. Wasn't as good as the book because I really enjoyed the mm-hmm. book. But watching it for the second time, I, I enjoyed it a lot more, I think, because it's been so long since I read the book. Right. And I was able to appreciate quite a few elements of the film more than I previously did. Uh, so what about yourself? Your first kind of full viewing, what did you think of the film? Ah, well, I read the book. You you gave me the book when I came to visit you in Dubai. Yeah. And I so I, and yeah. I read it and I really, really enjoyed it. It was really funny. You know, you really, I, I was really rooting for Barney in the book. I got, I didn't really enjoy the movie, if I'm honest. Um, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I mean, I just, you, you, can, you can look at the cast and as well as the ones I've mentioned, there's loads of Swally favourites on there. There's like James Cosmos in there, uh, Barbara Rafferty, I McCallum, Kevin Guthrie. I don't know. I mean, I just, I've kind of been along with Robert Carlyle since I first saw him on TV. You know, I, you know, if you think back to his early appearances on TV, they, I think a Carlos song with Ken Roach, Riff Raff, he's one of the, and one of the best um, crackers as the, the Scouse serial killer. And obviously train spotting and everything that he's done since. And I don't know that I, I just, I didn't really, I, I, I kind of wanted him to get, get caught. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. I, 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 I just felt like he kind of he sort of misjudged the character a wee bit you know what I mean because he's um, it's just it's just not, not very likeable as that kind of I didn't I didn't think I didn't think so in my in my opinion for what it's worth I just think you know it's his directorial debut and the thing is I mean the film is it was quite well received largely I think mm. and he was he was nominated for a BAFTA for di- for directing and everything so you know it's this is the, the film has been well received I don't know I was just I mean I would, I'm glad it was only 90 minutes but that way I was I was quite glad to get, you know I could watch it twice um for the swally and they on the second view and I saw I tried to keep an open mind I thought well maybe you know give it another go but yeah I mean I just I just I mean, you know it's got some it's got some great moments for sure but I think he probably should have found someone else to play Barney and just focused on directing the film you know do you think and because obviously we'd both read the book before we'd seen the film yeah. and in the book Barney Thompson is effectively this kind of hapless loser mm-hmm. who stumbles through life but he doesn't have like a mean bone yeah. in his body and I, I don't know if you've read any of the other 
books. And again, it's very kind of similar situations. Barney's just kind of this, he's almost like a Frank Spencer type character, if that makes sense. Like he's kind of just this lovable guy who's maybe a bit of an idiot and just stumbles through life, doesn't mean any harm on anyone. Carlyle's portrayal of him in this film is quite similar, but there are quite a few moments that you do see there's a slight edge. Mm -hmm. And when you see Barney having a go at the customers, and when he has a go at Chris, when Chris confronts him about killing Mm -hmm. Willie, which, spoiler alert, we'll come back to. You do see a little bit of a kind of flick and a a switch. And there's a couple of moments that you do almost see a Francis Begbie element to Robert Carlyle's character. And do you think that's, as you say, maybe he should have cast someone else? Is that why? Because he is too associated with the Begbie character that when he does suddenly go into like a little bit of a rage, you're expecting him to pull out a knife and say, no cunt leaves till we find out what cunt did yeah. it. Possibly. I mean, his career, you know, his, his, his felt apart from the sort of Hamish Macbeth, everything else that he's done has been sort of quite edgy characters, especially when he's been leading the mm. movie or when he's been sort of, he's played these sort of edgy, unpredictable characters. You know, whether he's playing like a Bond villain or whether he's playing like Rumpelstiltskin in that uh, grim fairy tales series uh, that's on in the US or whatever. So, you know, to, to, for him to play a character like Barney Thompson, who is supposed to be a bit of a victim of circumstance you know like all the stuff that comes out later with his mother when she basically she tells him she doesn't know who his dad was because she'd been a prostitute so it could be one of any number of people um and all that and i don't know it's just i think the, the you know the, the sort of because like in the book he's married he's got a wife in the book hasn't he yeah and um uh, and she's addicted to australian soap operas yeah isn't she yeah that's right yeah she's always taping home and away and yeah, yeah. neighbors and stuff yeah i mean i just I think you know there's a lot of sort of idiosyncrasies in the book like that like the one just mentioned a great example and he's got all these different names for the haircuts that he's that he's done you know what I mean like a Dennis the Lo- Dennis yeah Lo- and all that kind of thing and you know all that it's, it just it endears you to him you know and like how he's there's I think it it says more about because it in the book, if I remember it right, his life gradually, as soon as like Willie's been killed, a lot of by, a lot of parts of his life start to go a lot better for him than they were before. Mm. Whereas it's not really until the end of the movie that you know it's established that he's doing well, the barber shop's busy, people are coming to get their hair cut by him, and all that sort of thing. And I don't know, it just makes you when you read the book, it just makes you kind of you're on Barney's side for the whole thing. You know what I mean? I just thought it was a strange they like, having those like those beautiful little idiosyncrasies in the film rather than trying because he can't really seem to decide whether he wants it to be like a black comedy or a thriller you know just with some of the some of the notes and stuff like that the the whole the last scene that he has with Emma Thompson who plays his mum which it's just about that's a bit weird as well that's just a strange choice she got really good reviews for it but she's been a lot better you know I think her Scottish accent is it's not great really I mean it sounds Glaswegian but it sounds like it's sort of Glaswegian turned up to 11 um, there's no subtleties in it and that last scene with them when they're sitting around the fire and uh, the kind of demolition site you know it, it, it suddenly becomes this really sort of serious kind of you know mm. all the bits of comedy that they, that he worked to try and establish in that relationship and, and that again that's a bit of a strange relationship because he kind of follows her around and, and does everything for her and she treats him like absolute shit you know what I mean and it's just like why are we supposed to root for any of these characters he's 
pathetic and his mum is a fucking total cunt to him all the time. Do you know what I mean? I don't remember it being like that in the book. I think the mother was a more sympathetic, although she is revealed to be the, the serial killer, she was still a more sympathetic character if I remember right. That she, she did do things to help Barney because he was her son, you know? I would say you're right. It does jump about and it is a kind of film, it doesn't know what it's meant to be mm-hmm. because as you say, there are very serious kind of melodramatic moments in terms of, as, as you described, when they're at the Red Road Flats and mm-hmm. burning the body parts and they <laughs> have this big kind of conversation. There are literal farcical elements in it when Barney goes to go and dump uh, Chris's body and he's like, where are the boats? And then you see him go back and then get a diggy and you see him blowing up yeah, the diggy. Yeah. It's bordering on farce, the same as the um, the old woman that is kind of left over from his mum's party. Yeah. And she's just wandering around and makes odd appearances. And of course, the, the when Barney has Chris's body in a, the boot of his Nissan and the dogs are sniffing at the boot, it's kind of bordering on farce. It, it, it's like a carry-on film yeah, yeah. in those elements. But there are also very serious parts and subtle comedic moments. And I, I completely agree with you. It is almost like this film doesn't know yeah. where it should be. Um, with regard to, as you said about Emma Thompson being cast in the role, I'll be honest, before I started watching this for the Wally and it, it's been years you know I haven't watched this since it first came out instantly I'm thinking why did they cast Emma Thompson like they could have cast a Scottish actress in this that would have been more appropriate yeah my first thought was why didn't they cast like Barbara Rafferty yeah and of course she pops up later on in the film mm-hmm. however I think Emma Thompson is absolutely fantastic right in this film she steals it from I, I, I would say it is maybe overacting slightly but I think she's brilliant and I know her Scottish accent is a little bit wavering but she comes out with some great one-liners she, you can tell she is having the time of her life filming this and apparently Robert Carlyle sent her the script because he kind of had her in mind and she read it and within one day she got back to him and she said oh what a hoot yes yes I'll do this so she's given it her all and as you saw at the the end of the film when they have the the outtakes kind of thing which again I'm not a big fan of kind of takes away from the film I think when you do something like that outtakes are only appropriate when you've got like a a balls out comedy yeah like I don't know American Pie yeah or something. yeah it's appropriate then but for a film like this, I, d- I don't agree with having the outtakes in the, the credits. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even a thing back when this came out. You know, that was long gone by then. Um, but you can tell she's she's really enjoying herself. Yeah, I, I thought she was really good. But I can see maybe yeah. if you thought she wasn't quite appropriate. Yeah, like, you know, I think sometimes with, with a film like this, you know, I mean, it's, it's financed by Creative Scotland and everything. I think there's some money in there from Canada. And I guess when you're trying to get invested Having, obviously, Emma Thompson as an acclaimed actor, having someone of that gravitas in your, in your film is going to get you more investment, you know? I mean, argue, you know, this, I mean, the rest of the cast, Ray Winston, who we'll, I'm sure we'll come on to shortly, you know, he's, he's a big star in the UK, but not necessarily internationally. Uh, Ashley Jensen is, you know, she's got a bit of, she's got a bit of uh, sort of skin in the game in the US from doing the extras and Ugly Betty, but, you know, most of her success has been here in the UK. So I guess, you know, you get someone like Emma Thompson, then you know, you're you're opening up potential new markets for your movie. You know, you can, you can get it overseas because people will be interested to go and see it. But um, maybe I'm being a bit cynical. But um, maybe because she, she, apparently she's only two years older than Robert Carlyle. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, she is. You know, I'd watched uh, an interview with the author Douglas Lindsay, 
and he explained in terms of the he wrote the book and it, it took years to get it published and onto the bookshelves and immediately it was bought up by a studio right. who wanted to make it into a film but this took years for it to actually come and Robert Carlyle I watched a few interviews with him as well and he said that he was offered this script six times right. in terms of an acting role and it was just a case of he was too busy or just timing didn't align that he wasn't able to take it and it wasn't until he was working in the states and he must have been working on the show i think you mentioned the Rumpelstilts. fantasy yeah Rumpelstiltskin Rumpelstiltskin. Thing, yeah. so one of the uh producers on that was a canadian producer and he said oh we've we've got this script do you want to have a look at it and bob was like oh jesus this thing again like it, this is like the seventh time i've seen this script yeah Okay. And the producer had said, well, yeah, we'd like you to kind of, you know, star in it and direct it. So he'd read it. But it's, it's, this is, it's nondescript Glasgow. Like, there's no locations. Mm-hmm. Where is this set? I said, well, it was a Canadian that had adapted it, the screen. So he brought in a Scottish scriptwriter to kind of amend it. And that's why you have very much the kind of Barrowlands area yeah. that of where it's set. And because that's, as Bobby Carlyle said in the interview that's where he grew up that that's his area that's what he knew so that's what he wanted to put yeah. into the script and it works really well giving it that identity and of course the Barrowlands is very prominent mm-hmm. in the film and you know the red road flats and that that area but um yeah it took quite a long time for it to come from book to screen yeah I, and the one of the things that i, that I enjoyed about the film was yeah i recognized a lot of those locations it's kind of weird because when when they when they're shooting from inside the shop you can see uh bridgeton train station across the road but then when but when they're shooting outside the shop it's actually it's near the bottom of um the high street in glasgow it's it's actually mm. it's, it's actually right next door to the headquarters of the orange order in glasgow oh wow <laughs> um, yeah, yeah no, that you know we've i think we we've said that most multiple times when we've been uh, reviewing stuff in the Swarthy, it's always quite cool to see places that you recognise and that you know intimately well on, on screen. So it was cool. And, you know, I, and I think that was a good choice. You know, the, the Barrowlands is obviously iconic. Um, I don't know that it's... Um, I don't know if they still do bingo in the Barrowlands anymore. They might. They, they may well do. I don't know. <laughs> and that's one thing that kind of annoyed me about this film as well. It, it's the kind of... It doesn't seem to know when it's set. Because you have, the barber is obviously a very old style kind of old school barbershop Barney obviously drives an old Nissan his mum goes to old bingo and stuff and it, I, I was paying very close attention to try and work out because no one has a mobile phone yeah. or anything and it took me a long time but there is one shot when Barney's walking into the, the barbershop and a kind of newish Ford Fiesta passes by and I'm just like okay is that a mistake maybe like they've left that in but then when he goes to Chris's flat to plant the body parts Chris has a Kasabian poster yeah on the wall but and an espresso machine yeah. in the background so you're like okay so it's obviously set now uh-huh. well well not now but at the time so that kind of takes me out because it's quite ambiguous as to when it's set but they they put these little things in here and it makes it quite difficult to get on board of like okay am i meant to be watching a film that's in the late 80s or early 90s or, or when is this film meant to be happening as you say if she's going to bingo at the Barrowlands, then was that still a thing I, d- I, d- I don't know. It might still be. I mean, I mean, I've never been to Barrowlands to go to gigs. I've never been for any other reason. Um, so they maybe they do. do I mean, they might do bingo on other nights when there's not bands on. I'm not sure. 
sure. But um, but yeah, I mean, the thing is about Chris's flat, for a guy that works in a barber's, you know, I mean, I noticed that his telly was tiny, right enough. But um, (laughs) I mean, it's quite quite sort of, I don't want to say yuppie-ish, but quite smart. Apart from his his wee freezer. 15 fish fingers in the freezer. (laughs) And it didn't look like there was anything in the fridge. You would expect that fridge to be stocked with, you know, continental beers. Yeah. Or at least cans of tennis. (laughs) But no, it's just 15 fish fingers sat lonely in the freezer. That's what I to come back to one of my earlier points. That little riff, you know, so he's gone to, he's he's accidentally killed Chris, uh, played by the talented Martin Comston. Uh, so it, but he's gone to his flat to try and frame him. And he, with the intention of putting the body parts in the freezer, and, and but the freezer's too wee. And I, I remember really chuckling at that in the book. And you know, and I think like more of that sort of humour in the story mm. and less melodrama. I might have I might have enjoyed it a bit more, you know. Um, but that but that's a that's a great little beat, you know, when he turns up there. He's, he doesn't want to leave them on the table. He wonders if he should chuck them in the bin. He's like. He, they cut them up. He threw them in the bin. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that's that was that's funny. All that stuff. You know. I don't think we needed all this sort of like dark backstory for Barney. That is that you know when he's having the heart to heart with uh, his mum. It doesn't really sit in the movie. Well, that's where it works in terms of the as you said about the, the seed about the freezer yeah. and it being too small. That whole part works for me because then you have Barney giving the speech that he's going to pretend to deliver to the police yeah. and it's about the about oh yeah I heard Chris used to um, get locked in the bunker and his mum would throw a boiled egg in <laughs> yeah. and pull him out put him in a dress make him dance for his uncle Gerard <laughs> yeah. you know that's funny and then you get Matt Costello as the neighbour with the voice box you dirty bastard that, that works yeah. that's hilarious you know that that had me laughing out loud but a lot of the rest of the film not i think the the ashley jensen character is meant to kind of make you laugh more but i, I didn't find that really no. funny it, it it's kind of was lost a bit on me i i get what they're trying to do it was almost like a, a strong female and i watched an interview with ashley jensen and she said she got the script and she's like is this meant for someone else like i'm meant to be the character that effectively ray winston is scared of yeah that's that doesn't kind of fit me but okay i see we should try to do i think she's great in the film but just doesn't work really it, it it's too forced she goes over the top too much you know what i mean like mm. she i think she she kind of lets it get away from her and like the scenes where you know she's leading the sort of keep fit class on the police station roof and everything i'm like really yeah we don't really need that i'm, I'm i think that character no that, that character was a male character in the book i think right i don't think it was a woman mm, i think so yeah, yeah. but yeah you know i think with her she's probably you know enjoying getting to let her sort of her the, her, the, her scottishness sort of come out you know and lots of swearing and everything like that but um yeah if it, i don't know it just falls a wee bit flat which has got some good moments but um yeah so again another bit of a strange choice in the, in the, in the you know and if even she wonders if she was surprised to have been to have been uh, tapped up for the for the role then it mm. kind of says it all really you know and he doesn't have a huge part in the film but I think he is brilliant in it, is Stephen McCall yeah. as Willie Henderson. Mm-hmm. And when he is telling Barney that they want to let him go, no, it's not when they, no, it's not when they're wanting to let him go, it's when they he's moving him to the back chair. Yeah. And he delivers this speech about him having nay patter <laughs> and he's like a shitty cloud and he looks like a haunted tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Now, that is a good bit of direction, and he delivers that speech so well. Yeah. And then when Barney says, well, I need to speak to your dad, and you can hear Cosmo on the phone delivering the exact same lines, just the, the haunted tree. <laughs> <laughs> You've nae patter, Barney. Nae sparkle. You hang over the customers like a shitty cloud, scaring them away, stunning there like a big streak of piss. It's like you've had a charisma bypass. You look like a haunted tree, that's all I'm saying. Well, your dad brought me into this shop 20 years ago. I'd like to hear what he has to say about this. Eh? Right. Let's get my dad on the phone. Yeah, big fucking haunted tree. That works, and you kind of need that humour. Yeah. The subtlety running throughout the film. Don't go into big farce and then big drama. Yeah. Keep that humour running throughout the film and you've got me sold the whole film. I think Steve McCall's, like you've said before, it's not like a, not a big part. You know, he's, he's only in the film for... Uh, however, whatever, the first 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, something like that. You know, mm. but so for, for Carlisle to get an actor like him for a small part like that, you know, he, he's, he's brilliant. Like he's, he's the sort of like the kind of two big scenes, the one you just mentioned, and then the scene where he's, uh, when Barney accidentally kills him. He's, he's brilliant mm. in, in both those scenes. And like, there's the, the another film he's in, he's in M. Ned's, uh, Peter Cullen's Ned's, and he plays, the, he plays one of the teachers. And he's, on, you know, again, he's only got about 10 minutes in the film but he's absolutely fucking brilliant yeah I, I don't know why we don't see kind of more of him you know it's weird everything we've covered that he's been on in the Swatley I'm thinking young person's guide to becoming a rock star yeah. and orphans he's in something else we covered as well orphans yeah, yeah he's he's fantastic actor mm-hmm. yeah so yeah I would agree I don't know why he's not in more but everything we've done he's he's brilliant yeah in. he's really good and then I guess Martin Compton you know, he's I think he had a couple of uh, I think they've done two line of duty or two, there had been two Line of Duties released before this film came out. I don't think Line of Duty really went supersonic until, maybe, I don't know, like maybe the one with maybe the sort of third to last one, maybe? I think it was about series four. I yeah. think it went big. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, I think he's, you know, you get you get the feeling that he's enjoying being back in Scotland, doing, mm. uh, you know, doing his own accent, playing a kind of young, you know, he's he's sort of perfectly cast, actually, as, as the young kind of, the young kind of barber, like sort of shagger was it he says at the start i'll give you a mary hill moothie <laughs> yeah so what is a mary hill moothie <laughs> oh, no as barney says that it doesn't even make sense <laughs> no. this, is, this is my point like the first sort of 20 minutes half an hour of this film are really enjoyable you know what i mean um it's all you know in all those little bits of humor all those little exchanges between the characters are, you know are brilliant the um, the addition of Ray Winston is surprising. Now I like Ray Winston. I watch Ray Winston just about anything. I always enjoy a Ray Winston performance. In this one, I mean, he is good, and I did like him in the role. But the character is a, it's a really strange character. You know, like you you, you touched on yeah. it before. You know, he's supposed to be this older, I guess, like sort of experienced seasoned detective, and he's intimidated by this Ashley Jensen. He's sort of in competition with her, Ashley Jensen's character. Um, he's got you know he's got Kevin. Gun- 
Guthrie as his young sort of sidekick. And he doesn't really, he doesn't have like a great deal to do in it, mm-hmm. Kevin Guthrie, really. Well, I guess he, the last scene at the end he does. Yeah, but what did you think of Winston in this? I thought he was good. I, I mean, he was okay. From what I can gather, watching interviews with uh, Robert Carlyle, he, him and Ray Winston are very good friends. Mm-hmm. I, I believe they met on the film Face. Yeah, that's a good film. Just, yeah, yeah. So they've been very good friends ever since. And I think Carlyle said that people don't realise how funny Ray Winston is. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't do a lot of comedy. And that's why he decided to cast him in this role. Right. So people could see Ray Winston's kind of comedic side. Because they always see him as the daddy. Yeah. And they wanted him to kind of, you know, he he is still kind of a, not hard Mm man-ish. But, you know, he's still a commanding role. But he does have a comedic presence. And I I guess it was a bit of a favour, maybe, for Bobby Carlyle as well. You know, look, I'm directing my first film do you fancy being in it yeah why not he's okay I, I think you you get a good bit of his backstory and I think they do play that well he's an Englishman who came up to Scotland 20 years ago to because his mother-in-law was dying and she's fucking still alive <laughs> and it and you can tell he hates living there. Yeah. And the bitterness does come across. I think he plays that role well. But, yeah, I don't know. You could have kind of cast a, a Scottish actor in that role, maybe, and done away with that. And still had the bitter ex-Scottish cop. Yeah. Old bitter Scottish cop doing that. There are some brilliant parts that he's in. You know, I, I his favourite scene probably for me is the interaction with the kids in the close. <laughs> yeah. When they're like, oi, tag her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My mum thinks you're fucking shy. <laughs> yeah. You're like your profitelli. You're Tiger. You're off the bow. You're a loser. Oh, Tiger. Has there been a murder? Mambo hates your shite, Tiger. Fuck her! <laughs> The scene, um, the scene when they're in Tom Courtney's office and like the the arse is just like <laughs> sitting at the desk. I mean, but all the scenes that Tom Courtney's in are absolutely brilliant. You know, when he realizes that they, that they've put the arse on one of the plates from the canteen. But yeah, like, you know, I mean, I think I think Ray Winston is uh, phenomenal. It was good to see him. He plays the he plays the villain in um, Black Widow, the uh, the Marvel movie that was out in the summer with Scarlett Johansson. He plays a big baddie in that. So it's good to see, mm. good to see him in a big Hollywood film. I think one of my favourite um, Ray Winston performances is uh, Jack Nicholson's sidekick in The Departed. Um, oh really? Yeah, okay. I think it's really good. I mean, especially the scene when um, Leonardo DiCaprio hits a guy over the head with a glass for that because he, when he asks him if he's on his periods and he's like yeah he goes he goes I'm, I'm the guy that tells you who you can hit and who you can't hit that's not that guy's not quite a guy you can hit not quite a guy you can't hit <laughs> it's just like he's just really good in it um yeah he obviously okay. obviously excited about working with jack nicholson he's worked hard on his boston accent which isn't it's not perfect but it's not i've heard a lot worse you know uh, um, so to go back to the barras um you said you've been at a few concerts at the barras Barrowlands, what's yeah. your favorite i think my favorite and it's probably my favourite ever concert that I've been at was the Manic Street Preachers at the Barrowlands and, and it was I guess it'd been one of my first kind of concerts when I was about 18 or 19. I think they were touring the Holy Bible. Maybe a bit younger than 18, maybe about 17. Oh, okay. um, they're just the, a great band for the for that venue, you know what I mean? Especially back then, because so much energy uh, just that massive sound and everything it was uh, it was really, really good. But I've seen them, I've seen the Zootons there. I saw Soul Asylum. Um, remember Soul Asylum? Runaway Train. Saw them there. Yeah. I do, yeah. Yeah, because the Barrowlands, the, the venue is right beside the Barras, the market. Mm. That whole area is all being uh, gentrified 
um, that's been turned into they're trying to make it like Shoreditch in London but the problem is is that the street the Barrowland's on if you keep walking right up that street you come to Parkhead eventually so there's quite a lot of Celtic pubs up there yeah. um, like that have been there for years and years now, I've only been to one gig at the Barrowlands and I think that was in 1984 or 5 maybe I went to see White Zombie oh you told me yeah yeah but that was sweaty yeah <laughs> that was fantastic to kind of round out the cast as well, we mentioned at the beginning, or you mentioned uh, Brian Pettifer as Charlie. Yeah. Now, quite an oddball character, but yeah. a very central character in terms of the plot. Yeah, because he, he, he does a strange thing. When Barney's trying to get Willie's body into the car, and he's come over to ask him a couple of times, and he sort of sends him away, then he just kind of runs back into shot and then kicks the, <laughs> kicks the body. <laughs> that character in the book is someone totally different. I'm sure Charlie's Barney's yeah. mate that he goes for a pint with and he plays chess with them once a week or something right i'm not sure why they kind of made him into a, an eccentric character but i mean he works at the fair and uh, to be fair that is one of my favorite lines of the film when they're in teacup ride and he said i need a partner otherwise i look like a pedophile try and look as if you're having a great time we're trying to attract punters here see the thing is i need to be chummed up otherwise i look like one of the pedophiles do we not just look like Two pedophiles. Ah, right enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was cracking. Um, yeah, it was good. It was good to see him. He's not stupid though. He's a conniving little bastard because yeah. obviously he wants a free haircut. But at the end, he's the one that rats Barney out to the police. So. He's not stupid. Yeah, when I mean, he sort of stitches him up twice, doesn't he? I think the first time he's, he kind of blackmails him, oh. right, making him go to the fair with him and stuff, doesn't he? And then, and then once Barney's sort of strangled him a little bit on the teacup, right? So that's when he sticks him into Ashley Jensen. Yeah, and of course he um, he effectively lands him in it with Chris, which ends up mm-hmm. Barney accidentally killing Chris. Yeah, I mean Brian Pett for I mean, he's just one of these actors who just seems to have always been around. Probably most famous for being in Rabsy Nesbitt, right? That's where I would instantly think him from, Rabsy Nesbitt. But then, and obviously not a Scottish actor, but uh, Tom Courtney as well was the superintendent. Mm. I mean, he's just... Hilarious. He's got he's, he has some of the best lines in the in the film. Like, you know, if you, you know, if you're gonna walk backwards into a room with your trousers down, you're gonna get bummed. <laughs> you know? He does. And as you say, he's in what, maybe three scenes yeah. maximum, but he he completely steals it every time. <laughs> he's got those one liners. Yeah. And probably one day of filming for him. And he's like, Yeah, I'll do one day and get it all done, brilliant. A little long weekend in Scotland, you know, a day's work and then a bit of sightseeing. <laughs> so, despite my misgivings about the movie, it was reasonably well reviewed. Like it's got like a 61% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which isn't bad. The website's critical consensus reads, The Legend of Barney Thompson may not quite live up to its grandiose title, but it offers a fine calling card for debuting director Carlyle and... Emma Thompson's performance adds a spark. On Metacritic, the film has a weighted average score of 59 out of 100, and so mixed or average reviews. But Eddie Harrison, who writes for the list, he didn't like the film. He gave it 2 out of 5 and commented that the film's brand of gallows humour feels woefully dated. It's such a shame that Carlyle's poor selection of script has rendered his first attempt to direct as dead on arrival. Um, he also criticised the film's ending as being delivered on the indulgent level of a student film, but 
But to be fair, that's how the book ends. I, I don't think there's I don't think there's four I don't think there's a four policeman there in the book. I think it's just Holdall and um uh, Robertson are the, the, the yeah. two detectives that end up shooting each other. Um yeah. so you know, to I uh, that's probably a bit unkind on um on that guy's part if if he's Carlyle should try to be true to the book. What did you think of that ending? It does feel quite forced. It's very much a reservoir dogs is kind of obviously the one that everyone's going to spring mm-hmm. to mind. And I did feel it quite forced and uh, the difficulty is that having read the book I know how it ends and as you say that is how it kind of ends but it's just the two police officers and to have the four of them and have the face off and shoot off yeah maybe a little bit much but you have to kind of stay true to the source text Wait, when I read the book I saw uh, I mean the ending was quite surprising but I, I kind of felt like well I wonder if he wasn't really sure how to kind of wrap this up you know what I mean like, you know he obviously he wanted Barney to get away with it how does Barney get away with it when, bo- when both these detectives know that he is the he's the guilty man I'll just have them shoot each other you know <laughs> yeah. but I think the reason that it went over better in the book is because of the way that um, it's uh, built up in the book and the way it's described in the book and stuff it, it sort of it is easier to kind of accept whereas in the movie mm. it's a lot more abrupt you know no I would agree with you on that I think it's uh, maybe a little bit forced but to have the two sidekicks effectively shoot each other and then it comes down to Ray Winston Ashley Jensen mm-hmm. I mean, it was quite comedic that he shoots her in the hand and then she shoots off and then he shoots. It was quite well done, but I, I don't know, a little bit too forced for my liking. Yeah, it's, it's just a bit abrupt and, you know, why? I don't know, I suppose that they, they need to have, the like, Ashley Jensen and Ray Winston's characters need to have sidekicks in the film, mm. you know, because like in the, in the book, obviously the author can describe what they're thinking, etc., etc. But, you know, in, the, in a movie, they have to... So I tell somebody what they're doing, what they're, why they're doing it, and stuff. So I guess that's probably why mm. those those two characters, um, Sergeants McPherson and Jobson, were added in. So has I don't think um, Robert Carlyle has directed anything since doing this, right? He hasn't. I, as I say, I watched him in an interview with Lorraine Kelly and promoting Barney Thompson, and she did ask him, "Did you enjoy it?" directing and he said yeah i absolutely take my hat off to every director i've worked with i loved the five weeks of so of filming but after that nah it was torture so she did say to him "Uh, okay so are you going to be directing anything anything soon and he laughed and was like uh no (laughs) so that could be the end of bobby carlisle's directing career one and done you never know maybe he will do something else but I genuinely get the feeling that this film kind of put him off directing and he realised that it's not for him. I mean, his career, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of surprising because if, if you take like a contemporary, I suppose a contemporary of his is probably, although although he's a bit younger, it's probably Ewan McGregor. Uh, and Ewan, Ewan McGregor is, you know, he's had a varied career, but he's he's like a, he's a movie star now, um, Ewan McGregor. You know what I mean? If you look at Carlyle's IMDb, so his first movie's in 1990. He does Silent Scream and he does Riff Raff with Ken Loach. He does a few sort of obscure things before he does Train Spotting in 1996. The same year he does Train Spotting, he does Carla's Song, which I think is another Ken Loach movie. The year after that, he does The Full Monty, which was like, I think it was like the, the most successful British film since Four Weddings and a Funeral. Yeah. He leads the film. He's He does a perfect Sheffield accent. Like he's brilliant at doing accents. The same year he does Face, whereas again he does 
a really good London kind of Cockney accent. Like, 1999, he does uh, Plunkett and McLean. He does Ravenous. He does his Bond film, The World Was Not Enough. He does Angela's Ashes, which is really good in again. And again, doing like a perfect Northern Irish accent. Yeah. And then the year after that, he does the, he got a, he's got a little part in The Beach, some movie I've not heard of. He does The 51st State with Samuel L. Jackson, which was which is a good film. And I remember being like pretty huge when it came out, The 51st State. Mm. And then that's kind of like his last kind of big kind of movie. Would it not be fair to say that if you're comparing him to Ewan McGregor, mm. and I don't mean this to be disparaging, I mean this as a compliment to Robert Carlyle, Ewan McGregor is a, a leading man in a film. Yeah. Robert Carlyle is a character actor. Yeah. And that is... I would genuinely say that is more of a skill to have yeah, for sure. than you know being a character actor than a leading man. Yeah. So okay, again, no disrespect to you, McGregor, but he is a fantastic actor. But Carlyle absorbs his characters, yeah. and he really is—he's more suited to being a second or third kind of lead or bit part character. Look at Train Spotting, as we said when we reviewed Train Spotting, available wherever you get your podcasts. Begbie steals the film yeah. because he is a bit part character, and he's not in a lot of the film, but yeah. he absolutely steals the show. And if you think about The Beach, for example, he's in that for, what, about a minute? Yeah. But his performance is so memorable. Films like The Fool Monty, which I agree, he does a brilliant job and biggest British film since Four Weddings and Funeral. He's great, but it's not memorable for me. When I think of Bobby Carlyle, I think of things like Trainspotting or bit part roles or even Hamish Macbeth. I think he's probably, you know, like, Hugh McGregor has, he's taken, like, you know, like Star Wars, you know, probably launched him in the US. And then, you know, he's, he's done other big ones like the Moulin Rouge and whatnot. Um, and, you know, and, and the thing is, like, those original three Star Wars films, you know, they're not, they're not great movies. Sorry, are you saying the three original Star Wars films Sorry. Are, aren't great? I meant to say the three prequels. I mean the prequels, obviously. Um, you know, he's as good as any other actor in them, but, you know, they're not really they're not very well-constructed movies, you know, and, it, mm. and that has been debated ad nauseum, so I'm not going to go into that. Whereas, if you look at Carlyle's stuff, it feels like he's taken projects that were interesting to him. And when you think about the film, what we always say the, the film Monty has become this sort of quite famous British kind of feel-good film, but I wonder when he was looking at the script, it's like, right, well, so he's part of, like, a group of guys in Sheffield, you know, a former industrial city, high unemployment, estranged from his wife. He's probably looked at that and thought, well, that this is right up my street, you know, as an actor. These are the sort of projects that I'm interested in doing. I wouldn't be surprised if he's turned down a few kind of big Hollywood roles earlier in his career, Robert Carlyle, because, like, to exactly the point you said, that he does seem more sort of interested in character and I don't know, like, you know, we said earlier on in the podcast, you know, he's got a reputation for playing quite unpredictable characters and no, no, none more so than Begbie. And, you know, he's it's maybe not served him all that well um, in terms of profile. But, he, you know, he, the last thing I saw him in, I think, was the uh, the BBC did a, like a mini-series of The War of the Worlds. Um, like, uh, Rafe Spall was in it and Robert Carlyle. He's not got a very big part in it. It's not very good. Um, that's no, not through any fault, Robert. Carlyle's uh, it's just it's not it's not great to be honest you know like he, he picked up a small role in 28 well quite an important role in 28 weeks later the sequel to 28 days later uh, there's sort of zombie one that he's in the sort of first half of the film so no I, th- I, th- I think you're absolutely right I think he's he looks for kind of rich characters and in interesting situations as opposed to maybe taking like a big 
a big check to do something that doesn't really appeal to him, you know? So shall we put Barney through our coveted Swally Awards? I'm looking forward to this because I think we're going to have different opinions okay. on this. So let's go for it. Come on. What have we got first? And I'm going to let you go first okay. for most of the awards because I want to hear your opinion. <laughs> okay, so for the Jake McQuillan, your tease award, I had the Kevin Guthrie headbutt in the last scene. I'm looking at my notes and exactly what I've put is Guthrie sticking <laughs> heat on copper. So that's exactly what I've gone for, yeah. And that's the only kind of main bit of violence in the film that isn't yeah. accidental so to speak. So, yeah, has to be Guthrie. Oh, apart from Barney choking Charlie on the teacup ride. And then the James Cosmo award for being an everything Scottish. Well, you have to give it to Cosmo, don't you? Yeah. I mean, we didn't speak about Cosmo. I know. In terms of the review, he's very good. Yeah. Um, he's only in a few scenes, but he's very good. He's James Cosmo. He's He is good. I, I was kind of dithered between him and Eileen McCallum, who plays the sort of senile neighbour of uh, Barney's mum, uh, who keeps kind of turning up. Because, um, I mean, I remember when I was a kid and she was on Take the High Road. Mm for years and she's obviously she's in the steamy she's in a lot of Peter she's in a lot of Peter McDougall's stuff that he did for the yeah. BBC including just a boys game she plays uh, the nagging wife at mm. the, at the uh, garage so yeah I mean but I know I mean I think you kind of have yeah. to give it to Cosmo right you can, you have can to. give it to yeah sure Cosmo it. always wins it he always wins it I mean he's it's named after him okay we'll give it to Eileen archetypal Scottish moment I had fish and chips at the dog track because <laughs> there's just something oh really yeah uh, okay yeah what did you have well a dog Dog track for me, I associate with kind of East London, Cockney, yeah. maybe Blur, Park Life that I associate that with. But I was torn between two, and it's the kids in the close <laughs> with the tagger reference to Ray Winston. But I think my number one has to be when Barney goes to his mum's house and she's having a little party because someone died at the bowling club and they're having a little funeral after tea there. And a woman comes in and says, Have you got a carpet sweeper? Barbara's cout the ashtray. <laughs> That's much better. I think I just gave it to the to the dog track thing because I used to pass by Shawfield regularly. So like mm. Shawfield is one of those things I just associate with Glasgow. Just you know, um, yeah. But yeah, I like I forgot about uh, <laughs> cout the ashtray. That was really good. I quite liked as well the the wake for Barney's mum in the Saracen Head with all the women all singing along to the old songs and stuff. That's quite. That was nice. Quite, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we can't I don't think we can get the Ewan McGregor award out for this one because there wasn't any gratuitous I beg your pardon well when well in the first five minutes there's a penis in a box <laughs> yeah I never really I was kind of looking for a sort of gratuitous but I suppose yeah you're right <laughs> it's pretty gratuitous you've got a Oh, you've got an arse on a table served in a canteen dinner plate. You've got a choice between two. I'd go for the bobby in the box, though. I think that's pretty gratuitous. Yeah, okay, I was, I was thinking more sort of intact naked bodies, <laughs> but uh, yeah. The Francis Begbie Award for swearing. And this, I mean, there's, there are many choices. Yeah. I think I'd written down in my notes about three times, holy Christ, there's a lot of swearing yeah. and F-bombs in this film. I have two. Right. I'm torn, but I think one kind of steals it. What have you gone for? I went for Ray Winston in the close with the kids, where he, he calls them f fucking sweaty socks or something like that. <laughs> I went for Emma Thompson at the dog track. The, the rant she delivers, she goes into a whole load of expletives about this dog yeah. and... She's like, you fucking shit. If I'm being honest, this award is best use of swearing. Yeah. 
So I have to give it to when Chris is reading the Lonely Hearts column in The Barber. Mature woman seeks adventurous man for nights of unbridled passion. God, you'd have to be desperate, eh? Nah, nah, well, that's what you call a gilf. What's that? It's a granny I'd like to... Fuck's sake, Chris, come on. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, for me, the comedic timing there wins it. It's It made me laugh out loud so yeah. much, and the timing is the best use of swearing in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Emma Thompson, like her mum was Scottish, like Nicola Stapleton's mum. Her, her mum was, I think her mum was quite a famous actress, act, well, a famous-ish actress. But apparently she spent a lot of time in Scotland during her uh, childhood, so that's why she's she can do like a reasonable Scottish accent. So the, the Sean Connery Awards, who, who won the movie for you? Emma Thompson yeah. for me, but I think you're going to disagree, aren't you? I don't know. I just didn't. I didn't. I just. I don't know. I just didn't think she was great. Well, no, I think she was good. No, maybe that's not fair. I just. I just. I, the character just seemed to be too exaggerated for me. You know what I mean? Like. So who wins it for you? I mean, I, th- I don't know. I mean, because I, I mean, it was a hard one because I didn't enjoy the movie that much. You know, I mean, I think I'd probably have to give it to Bobby Carlyle just because he stars and directs the film. You know, I don't think he's the best thing in the film. I think there's better performances than his, you know, like Stephen McCall. But again, it's a small, a small performance. Uh, Tom Courtney, but again, it's only a few scenes of work. But I think just, just for the undertaking, directing and and starring in his his first his first film and evidently last film as director, I think I'd have to give it to him. So is this the first for the Swally? Thirty episodes in, and it's something we watched that one of us has not enjoyed. I think it probably is. Um, it, yeah. yeah. I think we've enjoyed pretty much everything we've watched so far, and agreed that we've kind of enjoyed yeah. it. But yeah. I enjoyed it, but you really didn't. No, I mean, like, I, I enjoyed elements of it. You know, like there was there's some great scenes in there. Like and like that we said a few times earlier on, the the funny scenes are the ones that I enjoyed. You know, like we we where the comedy is broader and stuff like that. You know, and it's these and and also the little sort of subtleties, like the one you mentioned when he's listening on the phone to Stephen McCall talking to his dad about what a pain in the arse Barney has become. I feel like Sunshine on Leith was a little bit problematic as well. I don't think that we were quite we were quite enthusiastic about mm. that either. But um but like you know, but how many That's films true. have we directed? Yeah. None. <laughs> so we can't really fucking criticize. I have I have neither starred in nor directed a movie, so it's not really for me to you know, it's just I the beholder, nothing more. Um so it is your turn to choose our uh, subject matter for the next episode of the Culture Swally. What have you chosen? I was a little bit torn this week, but I kind of decided I read that Paul Brannigan, who is, of course, Swally alumni from his appearances in Angel's Share, which we did recently, uh, Under the Skin, and Sunshine on Leith as well. I've read that he is about to play Paul Ferris, uh, the former gangland enforcer, in an upcoming film, which I'm sure we will cover on the Swally when it comes out. But I thought we should take a look at the previous film, which covers the life of Paul Ferris. So I want to take a look at The Wee Man, starring Martin Comstock. Brilliant, and Stephen McCall. Oh yeah, and Stephen McCall Brilliant. as well, yeah. Oh, nice one, yeah, I've, I've seen I've seen that. I haven't seen it for a long time. I do, you, I know uh, you McGregor's uncle's in it. Of course, yeah, uh, Dennis, uh, I was away to say Dennis Nielsen there. <laughs> I was going to say Dennis Law. Wedge of Star Wars. I've never seen okay. it, so I'm looking forward to watching yeah. it. Yeah, never seen it. 
Christmas. So um, I'm looking forward to getting your opinion on it and your memories. It's got a good cast. Uh, John Hanna's in it as well. Um, and uh, Patrick, is it Patrick Bergen? He, uh, he's in Sleeping with the Enemy. Oh, I love Sleeping uh, with the Enemy. That's a great film. Yeah, I think, I think he's in it as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for listening, everyone. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can. You can follow us on Instagram at Culture Swally Pod, or you can follow us on Twitter at Swally Pod. Or if you have anything that you would like us to review or any news items you've seen you'd like us to cover, then you can email us on cultureswally at gmail.com. Or hey, why don't you go into iTunes and give us a little rating, a little review, or wherever you get your podcasts, anything you can do would really help the pod. And we would thank you very much. Oh, and we have a website now, Greg. What's happening with the website? Yeah, it's still it's still fucked. Um, unfortunately, uh, I did spend quite a long time on the chat with a technician at Bluehost last week. Uh, at, at the time of recording... It's still not optimised, but normally you can find us at cultureswallyblog.com where there's links to all the episodes, including this one, and links to some of our favourite uh, stories that we've covered over the last 30 episodes. So do come and meet us there. We do have, we've got a follower on Instagram that we've mentioned before, and he likes every post. His name is Henry. I think he lives in Canada. And he's clearly a baker because he posts a lot of pictures of like rather delicious looking food. And I'm, I'm interested to know if he just likes the Instagram account or if he does listen to the podcast. So Henry, if you do listen, um, we're giving you a mention. So let us know. Give us a little a little poke on Instagram just to see. It'd be part of our experiment. Yeah, we do get some downloads from Canada. Yeah, so yeah. I'd be very interested to know if, uh, if Henry is our does. downloader. Henry, if you're listening, let us know. We love yeah. you, Henry. Send food. <laughs> Okay. Well, great. Thank you. Until next time, Greg. Until next time. 